0: Now, uh, I try to start every sermon with reading Scripture first because I think it's theologically appropriate that God have the first word. But before we read from Deuteronomy 6, you can turn there now if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy 6, um, verses 4 through 9, I want to just frame this text for you for a moment. This is like the, the creed of ancient Israel, But it's not just for ancient Israel. So I want you, as I read this text, to try, with God's help, to hear this, not as this retelling of something old, but as God's word now, today, for you. Your God's word, for you, God's covenant people. Okay? Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. That's a lot. 613 rules to follow. 613 ways to see the character of God. 613 opportunities for us to care more about following the rules than to care about the rule giver. 613 opportunities to not measure up to God's standard for holiness. No wonder sometimes the Old Testament overwhelms us. And one day a Pharisee wanted to trap Jesus with his own words, and so he asked Jesus to pick one of these commandments as the greatest, thinking, oh, this will really get him. I'll use his own words against him, and then he won't be able to have anything to say for himself. But Jesus. He quoted this verse, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And his answer was so orthodox and so wise that the Pharisee had, had nothing to say in response to him. Now, one of the great principles of the Bible, of interpreting the Bible, and one that we would do well to think about uh, often is that. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible as much as we can. So one passage uh, helps explain another passage. We interpret the less clear things by the more clear things. That's the kind of step one of Bible interpretation. But rarely is the Bible so obvious and explicit in its self-interpretation as this passage in the Gospels, where Jesus quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus himself says that this is a a lens that we can look at the Old Testament laws through. Jesus said this is basically the organizing principle of the Torah. He said that this, the greatest command, is not only the central and most important command of the Old Testament, but it's the command from which all the other commands flow and under which all the other commands fit. In other words, 613 or 611, depending on which rabbis you follow, commands, because I saw you there, (laughs) I'm kidding, 613 commands fit under and are summed up by this one thing, love God with everything you've got, all your heart, soul, and might. So it's no wonder that the Shema became the creed of Israel, as it were, by the time of Christ. Faithful Jews would have prayed this at least two times a day, morning and evening, often a a middle time at midday, every day, every day. Jesus himself likely prayed this. We have no reason to think he didn't do that. Now, the passage starts with a statement of who God is. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then what follows is how we are to worship this God. So the big idea that I want to get across with God's help in the sermon today is that you, you will only be able to hold nothing back from God when you see that he's held nothing back from you. That's the big idea, okay? So two points. Point number one, hold nothing back from God. Look at verse four again with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the, the word here right at the beginning is a crucial word. Um, it's a common word, but it doesn't mean the same thing in the same way that it means to us, to the ancient reader. So it doesn't just mean to let sound waves come into your ear. And it doesn't even just mean to kind of understand and really get the concepts that are being communicated. This word in Hebrew is shema, and it means to hear and to do. There is no other real word in Hebrew for obeying and obedience. It's to hear and to do. So in the Bible's way of speaking, you haven't really heard something until you've done something with what you've heard. For instance, Genesis 3.17, after Eve gave Adam the fruit and he ate, God said, he said, basically, I'm going to curse the ground because you, Adam, shema the voice of your wife Eve. Yeah, you listened. And And he didn't only listen, he also obeyed. He was supposed to obey God. He was supposed to hear and do what God said, but he decided to put someone else in that place and hear and do what his wife said instead. And we instinctively understand this. If I were to tell you know Catherine to unload the dishwasher and she says okay but doesn't do it, has she really heard me? That's not a normal situation, dear. Don't worry, I'm not picking on you. It's not. If we open up God's word, and we hear how he wants us to live and love and worship, and we do nothing, and we don't allow it to change us and move from our ears into our hands and our feet, have we really heard? We have not. So right from the first word of this passage, we learn that what follows isn't Just theology, it's praxis. It's not just something to know, it's something to do. That's what the Shema is about. Theology is not enough. Our theology has to have legs. A good theology matters, that's why it starts with who God is. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then we have to do something with it. Gospel doctrine alone is not enough. We need to live it. That's why Jesus kept saying in the Gospels, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus isn't saying, gee, I hope you understand this. The Pharisees understood. He's saying, do this. You haven't heard until you've done. Now, let's read verse 5 again. You shall love the Lord your God. So we're moving from theology to the doing, the knowing to the doing. We shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So there are three key words that we're going to explore a little bit here in this verse. Um, heart, soul, and might. We need to understand what these mean. Because to borrow the Crownovers term, heart, soul, and might mean something pretty different to Mr. and Mrs. Israelite than they do to us. Okay? So, we have to do our due diligence with the Bible and make sure that when we read a word, we hear a word there, we understand what that word is talking about. It's important. So let's think about the word heart, the first of the key words. The Israelites knew um, a decent amount about the, the human body. They were aware of the organ that we call the heart, and they, you know, this word also referred to that organ at times. But the big difference is they didn't really have a conception of what the brain does, So whereas in America, we we think about uh, thoughts coming from the brain and feelings coming from the heart, for the Hebrew, it was not like that. For for Mr. and Mrs. Israelite, 3,000 years ago, the heart was the realm of three things, of your emotions, your mind, and your will. All of that was the heart, the emotions, the mind, the will. So your feelings flow from your heart. That's how we think as well. Your thoughts flow from your heart, and your intendings or your choices, your will, flows from your heart as well. Now, we instinctively know that those three things belong together. When we encounter somebody who lives out what they believe or what they think to be true with their emotions and their mind and their will, we say that person has integrity. There's a wholeness about that person. It's something to long for. That's something to pray for, a sort of spiritual heart wholeness and integrity. David prays for that in Psalm 86. He says, he prays to God, unite my heart that I might fear your name. It's as if he's recognizing that your emotions and your mind and your will are (laughs) ununited. They're not united as sinful, fallen, broken people like us. Our emotions might feel one way, but our will won't comply, or our mind doesn't get on the train. And David prays, unite my heart. Draw those three together for one purpose. That's challenging. I can't read the Shema without praying the prayer we prayed earlier, most merciful God. I have not loved you with my heart, with all my heart. It's challenging, and it's good to be challenged by that. God doesn't let us off the hook in Deuteronomy 6. He doesn't say, it's okay if you don't change. I don't need your will as long as I have your feelings. That is not what God says. We must love him with our mind as well. He doesn't just give us a free pass to live in whatever mental reality we want to live in. That's why Jesus you know, he, he made that really clear when he said in the Gospels that even looking at a woman with lustful intent is tantamount to adultery. Our mind belongs to God and is made to love God as well. So good intentions aren't enough. But we're not free, we're not let off the hook to be idle with our minds either. To love God with all our minds includes an active mental pursuit of God. It is our job and our joy to intellectually grow in the knowledge and love of God. We're to love him with our whole minds. And he doesn't even let us off the hook with our emotions. You might be really theologically astute. You might have seminary degrees up the wazoo. You might do all the right things, but he wants your emotions too. He actually wants you to delight in him. You know how many times the word "rejoice," the command is in the Bible, where to actually, he's saying, "You must rejoice in me; you have to like me." God does not let us on off the hook; he wants us set on fire for him, not cool or lukewarm. So Hallmark has had the phrase "I love you with all my heart" for far too long. Let's take it back. It's not a sappy statement of sentimentality. It's a challenging, full-throated claim on our whole being. That's what heart is. So let's think about the second key word, soul. Like heart, which is an organ and an idea, the word for soul in Hebrew is also a part of the body and then used metaphorically as an idea. So most of us, when we think about a soul, probably think about an abstract reality, that sort of intangible part of who we are. We think when we die, our souls go to heaven and our bodies go in the ground, right? That's not what the Bible says about the soul. Um, that's not a biblical sort of thought process that we have, and I have this too. Like, that's my default thought. Uh, we inherit that from Greek philosophy. That's, a, that's an ancient Greek way of thinking about the soul, the Hebrew word for soul, the way that the authors were using it in this context, it's your throat, nefesh, your throat. Tim Mackey says, because our life and our being depends on what goes into and comes out of our throat, that this word came to represent you, your very life, my soul, me, my throat. It's nothing more... Well, that's not true. You get what I'm saying, though, that it's what, you know, you live or die by the throat, what you take into it or what you use it for. I try to keep myself from hyperbole. C.S. <laughs> Lewis was closer to the mark when he said, you're not a body with a soul, you're a soul with a body. Because the idea in the Hebrew mind is the you of you. <laughs> right? And it's not abstract. It's very fleshy and and corporeal. So soul became a way of referring to your person, the essence of who you are. But it's not just a way of saying me. They have words for me in Hebrew, right? That's not all it is. Think about Psalm 42. David says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. The word is the same word as what we're talking about here, nefesh. He's saying soul is a word of longing, a word of yearning, of desire, of thirst. I think we use the phrase soul thirst a lot around here for that very reason. We are to love the Lord our God with our thirstings, all of our longings, all of our desires, and our yearnings he wants all of you not just emotions not just thoughts not just will he wants your wanting as well of course easier said than done we can change our behavior by strong arming our will um, by reasoning with ourselves but how do you change what you want how do you start wanting what you don't want Ultimately, it's in the Lord's hands. But he does use our actions to that end. He uses us in the process of transforming our desires. So you can, in the Lord, actually stir up your delight in the Lord. You can. This is really good news. (laughs) Like, if you don't long for God, you can learn to long for God. He'll help you. He'll change you. For instance, um, you don't have to raise your hand, but are you a worrier? Most of us are worriers. The rest of us are naive. <laughs> if you're a worrier, then you know what it's like to stir up your own anxieties, right? You, you take the thing that you're afraid of or worried about and you put it in your mind and you, you turn it over and examine it from every angle and you run worst case scenarios and then you assume the worst of things. And you just, it's like you, you put it in your cheek and chew on it for a long time. If you know how to stir up your anxieties, you know how to stir up your delights. It's the same process. Instead of um, a problem or a fear that you put in your mind and turn over and over and over and examine it in the light, put the gospel in your mind. Have it be on your lips, bound to your fingers, between your eyes, on your doorposts, that's the point the more that we turn over and examine the goodness and the glory of God, the more we will be warmed by his fire. We will start to actually like him, to delight in him. Not because it's a mechanical process, but because God is a person. He's a person, and you can move toward him, and you can learn about him. And you can enjoy Him. And He promises that when we move toward Him, He moves toward us. He promises that. I take great comfort in that. And He designed this. He designed the human psyche. So this was His idea. I think we can trust Him with it. So that's the second word. Uh, Third key word that we're looking at here is the word might. You shall love the Lord your God with all your might. Now at first blush, it's easy to think... That this means love God as hard as you can. As hard as you can. That's a good thing. Sure, let's do that. That's not what's here. This is not a word of effort. It's a word of resources. Might is not a word of effort. It's a word of resources. The word is me'od, if you care. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your me'od. Now, let's think about a few other places that that word is used in the Old Testament so we can let the Bible interpret the Bible, like we talked about earlier. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was me'od good. It was me'od good. Genesis 12.14, when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was me'od beautiful. Joshua 1.7, only be strong and me'od courageous. Lastly, Psalm 46.2, we did this in our call to worship. God is our refuge and strength, a meod present help in trouble. You get the idea. It's a word for very or much. Now, the reason that in English, in our, you know, NIVs and NIVs and KJVs or whatever, that they don't translate it, um, that they use the word strength is uh, slightly complicated, but... Mainly it's this, that the English translators are unwilling to break the rules of the English language to communicate. I, on the other hand, am very willing to break the rules of the English language to communicate. Therefore, you must love the Lord your God with all your muchness. All your muchness. It's not a word of effort. It's a word of resources. So, how much muchness do you have? Love him with that. Do you feel frail, weak, weary? Love him with that. God won't tower over you and say, not good enough, try harder. That's not the Lord. What physical capacities do you have? Love God with that. Whatever muchness you have, that's what you love him with. What emotional capacities do you have? Financial resources, material resources. Love God with that. You want to be hospitable and love God by inviting people into your life and your space? You can have a mansion or you can have a trailer. It doesn't matter. Love God with that, right? However much you have. Give God your muchness. These three categories, heart, soul, and muchness, are kind of in order from the inside out. God wants your inner life, your desires and your being, and then your resources. In other words, he's asking you to hold nothing back from him. Again, easier said than done. Let's continue to think about holding nothing back from God in the next few verses, verses 6 through 9. So just like we dealt with three categories of you, right, the the heart, the soul, and the muchness, here we have three categories of your life. What I mean is this. Verse 6 is about worshiping God in your personal life. Verse 7 is about worshiping God in your family life. And verses 8 through 9 is worshiping God in your community or your public life. So uh, let's read again. This is verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It's your personal life. Right? You can't be just a public Christian. Um, You can't just love God here really well, go home and not care. Right? It's in the moments of solitude. It's in the recesses of our heart. He wants that too. Moving on, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Your family life, in your household, the love of God should be taught diligently to the kids. It should be the thing you think about. It should be the thing you talk about. It should be worked into the rhythms of your life. You're getting up and you're laying down, all of it verses 8 and 9, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, this was interpreted very literally for a long time, where people would literally put phylacteries containing these words around their, their head when they prayed and on their hands when they prayed. It's, it's very plainly uh, metaphorical. It's not necessarily wrong to do it literally, but it's Plainly metaphorical, and saying, Your public life matters. The love of God should so change you and explain you that everyone around you, everyone who passes by your house, everyone who sees you at the city gates, everyone who sees you with a thing between your eyes, as it were, knows there's something about you. Your love for God is obvious. So it's personal life, family life, and community life. Now, I probably don't have to tell you that the idea of a quiet time is a modern idea, not a bad idea. Have quiet times, please. Spend time with the Lord. But the idea that the, the way that we worship God in our personal life is 15 minutes at the beginning of a day or the way that we worship God in our family life is 15 minutes before bed, or saying, now I lay me down to sleep, or pray the Lord my soul to keep. These are fine things to do. They're good things to do. The problem is, we think about worship like coffee. I'm an espresso drinker, so I wake up in the morning, get my shots of espresso down it, and I go. I drink my coffee in the morning to keep me going through the rest of the day. But worship is not like coffee. Worship is like oxygen, No matter who we are with, or where we are, or what we're doing. In all the spaces of life, we owe God love with all of our heart, soul, and muchness. Holding nothing back from God. Now, for most of us, that feels rather impossible. Uh, Even if we strip away the other 600 and some commands and just try to obey this one, it feels like just one big opportunity to let God down. So who here can really say, I love God with everything I've got. I hold nothing back from God. You don't have to answer that. It's a hypothetical or a rhetorical question. What we need is transformation, not technique, right? We don't need new Bible reading plans, although those are good. We don't need to wake up earlier, although that can be good too. We need to be transformed, Like the prophet Jeremiah said, we need our hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh, hearts that are able to love God, hearts that actually long for God with his law written on our hearts. The Bible teaches us that this kind of transformation is a miracle from God, and the means of this miracle is beholding, beholding. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.18? For we are we, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding leads to transformation. When we see the gospel, really see it, with the eyes of our heart, we are transformed into the kind of lovers and worshipers that the Shema calls us to be. In other words, you can only hold nothing back from God when you behold the gospel where he held nothing back from you. Yeah. Let me come at it from another angle. The truth is, um, all your life, you've been trained by experience in this world with these humans that we deal with. You have been trained to hold something back from everyone. There's no one you can fully give yourself to because we're broken and we're rebellious and we fail each other, we're finite, we're weak. So can we, calloused people as we are, can we actually learn to trust God with everything? Yes. Yes, we can. It might feel impossible for you. Some of you, this might not feel relevant. Some of you, I guarantee it, you're sitting here thinking, there are corners of me, recesses of my heart, that I can't give to God. It's too scary. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I was doing a little research on what, you know, Forbes and psychology journals, whatever, how we build trust. Well, we, we build trust as, um, you know, we're reliable, we communicate clearly. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of, of um, a number of obvious sort of things. You have to be the sort of person that somebody could generally trust, and then That consistency and that character over time builds trust with people. And that's all fine and true. But what really builds trust is when someone does something so selfless for you that there's no possible benefit for them, and you are the sole beneficiary of that act, like dying for you. If you hold the gospel in your heart, in your mind, and you turn it over and you examine it, and you grow to appreciate it, you stir up your delights in the Lord, you will begin to trust Him. And I want to encourage you in the Lord today that when He starts to do that in your heart, go for it. Don't hold back. Jump in with everything that you've got. So we don't learn to trust God by looking at God's people. That's sometimes... Work that, you know, sometimes that works out. Sometimes that does not work out. Many of us here have been deeply harmed by people who claim to be the people of God. So don't look at people and say, well, if, if they seem to be Christians, but I can't trust them, then I can't trust God. Look at the facts. Look at the cross. That's the place where you can learn to trust again. God held nothing back from you there. He's earned your trust. So I guess that's, we're probably already in point number two, God held nothing back from you. Uh, The first thing, I alluded to this earlier, the first thing the Shema does is not um, tell us what to do, but it's to tell us who God is. So it starts verse four, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. The Lord, our God. Don't look over that. Our God. If you belong to Jesus, then he belongs to you. Then you're his covenant people. There is a loving, a deeply loving, and deeply committed relationship in a covenant Marriage is a covenant, but it's just a type of what we have with Christ. It's a shadow of what we have with Christ. So in other words, the one that you are to love with everything you have is the person who's most committed to you and to your good. When we start to see that he's our God, that he's the most committed to us, then we can start to love him truly. And he proved that he is the most committed to us and to our good at the cross, where Yahweh incarnate, Jesus, died, instituted the new covenant in his blood where we receive hearts that can actually love him, like the prophet Jeremiah was talking about. So we'll start to love him with all of our heart and soul when we actually see that he loves us with all his heart and soul. Do you ever think about that? Jeremiah 32, 41 says, it's looking forward to the cross. This is God speaking. He says, I will rejoice in doing them, that's us, good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart, with all my soul. All God's heart and soul love you. God loves you with his emotions. He likes you God loves you with his thoughts you are always on your on his mind somewhere in the Psalms I can't remember where D- David marvels at the idea that God's he says like how many are your thoughts toward me it's crazy God thinks about you specifically by name a lot and he, he loves us with his emotions, and he loves us with his thoughts, and he loves us with his will, his intendings, his choices. He puts his affection for you into action. He decided from eternity past to do something about this love, and he did it. He bled for the forgiveness of sins and to usher in that new covenant, to demonstrate his love. To put it into action. John, I love this. It's almost just a a tiny little tagline in John chapter 13. John says, Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end. How does God feel about you? He loves you to the end. All the way. God loves you with all his muchness. Every resource at his command is bent towards his glory for your good and your joy in him. Every resource. It's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because you have a heavenly father, if you're in Christ, who looks at every tiny variable and molecule in this broken, crazy world and bends it around for your good and for your blessing. Every resource at his disposal is wisely, lovingly wielded like a tool in a gardener's hands to make you flourish because he loves you with all his muchness. So furthermore, we're called to you know, we are called to teach our children his ways. And he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and teach us, his children, of the goodness and glory of Jesus to bear his fruit in our lives. We are called to bind his words on our hands and between our eyes and to, to declare to the world and to our, remind ourselves of his goodness. Now Isaiah forty nine sixteen says, Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Like the priests of Israel who wore an ephod, like a fancy vest, um, with the names of God's covenant people on his shoulders and on precious stones across the front. The high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies bearing the names of the covenant people on his shoulders in the presence of God for covenant remembrance. And Jesus, our great high priest, bears your name in the presence of God the Father and prays for you, intercedes for you, Amazing. Jesus... You ever think about what Jesus is doing right now? Well, we can say at least two things. He's praying for you, and he's declaring in the presence of God, the Father, his love for you. That's amazing. We are called to write his words on our doorposts and on our gates. This is crazy. Revelation 21.12 says that the gates of the eternal heavenly city in glory has the names of the 12 sons of Israel engraved on their doorposts. In other words, God has written his covenant love for his covenant people in the most public eternal place he can possibly imagine. He's not ashamed of you at all. And your name in some sense will be etched forever at the place of honor in glory. What I'm trying to say is this. God is so eternally, deeply, personally for you that when we start to even catch a glimpse of that love, it transforms us from the inside out. So let's go. Let's hold nothing back from God. Has he not earned our trust? Is he not worthy of our love? What more could we ask him to do? He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray.